The following recording is from Parramatta Christian Church. We pray that this message inspires you in your walk with Christ. So no slides for this part. We're in the Wise with Wealth Q&A. And if you haven't been here, <laughs> God help you. <laughs> um, I hope that this is still helpful and relevant to you. Now, a couple of qualifying statements as I start. Dash is not pregnant. So if I say anything that you really get upset about, throw your best darts. I'm not like Lewis. I don't have an immunity card to play today. So just go for it. Yeah, yeah. I knew that would get you. Because that was, you know, Lewis made that big announcement and then said, oh, yeah. I, I don't have anything. So there's a big target here. Just hit, hit me with it. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Um, I'm not going to be able to address every question and give you a comprehensive answer on every question that I'm going to address. I'm going to try and get through as many as I can and hopefully be, have time to take some questions from the floor as well uh, if we go real well. Um, I am going to not be able to apply, thank you, um, the stuff that we're going to look at to every possible pastoral situation. So I'm going to be speaking in generalities. What have I done? Covered the phone number. These people will cover. I'll write the number on the board. Yeah, see, see, there's always one genius in the room. And it's not me. Thank you, Lord. Um, so, if what is the number? Oh, four, two, three, three, two. <laughs> Somebody else will be getting all these weird texts, going. What does the Bible say about tithing? Excuse me. Five, three, zero. That's the number. The phone number to text if you have questions. Um, we, we've already received quite a few through the email system that we had, and people have just been asking different questions along the way. So saying, I can't apply it to every pastoral situation. It's going to be generalities. And so give me grace, and if you want to explore it more and say, well, how does that work into this particular situation? I'm happy to have that conversation, but I'm not going to be able to do that for every situation. So as long as we have those things in mind, let's jump into it. Let me pray because I need the Lord's help. Father, help me. Help me today to get through these questions because they're all important and they all matter and they're all sitting around in our head, running around, and we want clarity from your word. So guide us and instruct us. Help me to communicate things faithfully, to make things clear, as clear as I can. Uh, and Lord, that together we would be edified as we think about how we can live wisely with our wealth. For the glory and honor of your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. First question, how can I honor my migrant parents whilst having a different perspective on earning money and success? Great question. Uh, the simple quick answer, Acts 4, 18 to 19 is probably the most helpful. And also Jesus' teaching on loving him more than loving your parents, forsaking all others to follow him. Uh, in Acts 4, 18, uh, Peter and James and John have been brought before the Sanhedrin and they're being told not to preach in the name of Jesus. Now, they respected these people. They were their religious leaders uh, and they were held in high honor in their community and they reject that advice or that suggestion or that instruction. And they say, you be the judge. Should we be submitted or accountable to you or to God? And they say, well, we're going to honor God first. And if that means persecution from you, 
so be it. And so that's the short answer. Um, and I think honoring Jesus more than honoring your parents is not dishonoring your parents. Just to be completely clear. And I think sometimes we struggle with that. We think that if I have to dishonor my parents because I want to be faithful to Jesus, that that's dishonoring. No, no it's not. Jesus would not see it that way. Okay, so that's hopefully helpful. Second question. Am I responsible, for, and this question was asked of me a while ago, am I responsible for providing financial support for my family back in my country of origin? A lot of people here uh, who've come from overseas, and part of that expectation is that you are a sugar train back to your home country. And sometimes it's a crippling expectation, and it's a heavy, heavy burden. You know, how can we think biblically about this? Okay, 1 Timothy 5 uh, Uh, verse 4 and 8 are instructive here, where Paul makes it very clear that um, there is an expectation of Christians to care for their family. Actually, let's let's read these verses, because maybe you've actually never come across these, because they're kind of tucked away in this section about widows, and you might not have made the connection. Uh, 1 Timothy 5, 4, so Paul is writing to Timothy about instructing his church about how to care for widows. And he says this in verse 4, But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family. And so repaying their parents and grandparents, every parent and grandparent loves that word, repaying their parents and grandparents for this is pleasing to God. Verse 8 says, Anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Pretty strong words. So there's an expectation. But what is that expectation? That is where I think we need to have clarity. Here, Paul is instructing a church about caring for widows. And in their context, widows had nobody else to provide for them. No other means of support. If the church didn't provide for them, those widows would die, pretty much. In that context, Paul is saying, family, if you have family, well, you should be caring for that person who has no one else to care for them and not be a burden on the church. And if there's nobody, then as a church, we ought to be caring for them. So now, let's apply that to us. If you have family overseas, and your parents are a single parent, and they have no other source of income, or they're old, or they're ailing, and they have no other means of surviving, then yes, you are bound by Scripture to do what you can to care for them and provide for them. It's not to provide a decadent, luxurious, extravagant life, which sometimes people want us to do. That's not what the Bible is teaching us here. It's saying care for them so that they're not a burden in their community and so that they can have a life, provide for them. But if your parents have other means of support, like they have a job or they have a a husband or a partner who works or they have other kids that also can support them and all of that, then your responsibility is mitigated by that. Does that help? Okay. Okay. You might have other questions that flow out of it. Like I said, they're just generalities, but hopefully biblical principles that will help us think about this stuff better. This is an interesting one. Never heard this question ever in my life. Is money a post or pre-fall idea? Will money or the idea of money still be in heaven? Second part, I don't know the answer. Um, Someone like Randy Alcorn uh, or um, John Eldridge may have thought about that and written about that. I've not thought about it and I haven't had time to read their stuff, so I don't know what they would say. My guess is no, probably not. 
because heaven will be characterized by a completely different way of relating to each other and financial transactioning, I don't think will be part of that. But that's a guess. Let me do the first bit. Um, it's definitely post-fall. Adam and Eve did not buy and sell from each other or from God. God was their provider. But as early as Genesis 4, we're told that people were starting to specialize in various trades. There were people who were doing farming, people who were doing metalwork. And my assumption, again, not from Scripture, is that they would have had to exchange those goods and services some way. Um, and so that's probably the earliest indication that there was some sort of system, probably bartering that took place. And we know as Scripture unfolds that there was a lot of that kind of dealing going on where people were exchanging goods for goods and services. The first explicit mention of money is Genesis 17 where Abraham is buying a plot of land. And he, ex- again, uses silver as currency to do that. He weighs it out. And gives it. But before that, in Genesis 12 and Genesis 14, we also see goods being used as a way of transacting business. So in Genesis 12, Pharaoh gives Abraham a whole bunch of stuff, camels and sheep and stuff in exchange for Sarah because he thought that she was his sister and all of that weird stuff. So he gives him a whole bunch of stuff as a bride price. Uh, in Genesis 14, we see the king of Sodom giving Abraham a whole bunch of stuff, booty from war as payment for Abraham fighting the war with him or against his enemies. So we see that idea as early as Genesis, um, the early parts of Genesis. So post-fall and then developed from there. Okay, now we deal with the big, big elephant in the room, tithing. Now this is going to take me a while. Actually... I've got a short answer and a long answer, but I think I'll give you the long answer because I think it will help you think more about how to read and interpret the Bible than just when it comes to tithing. I think it'll be more helpful and useful for us as a church to engage with Scripture better uh, than just focusing on tithing. So the questions ranged, there was a whole bunch of them, and I'm not going to specifically address all of them, but in what I'm going to cover, I'm hoping it'll address many, if not all of those questions. So the questions were, I'd like clarification about tithing versus giving what you feel led to give, especially since tithing isn't explicitly taught in the New Testament. Second question, should tithing be on gross or net? Third question, is tithing a New Testament practice? Fourth, uh, should I tithe brackets give 10% to a local church or is it okay for me to divide my tithe up between the different causes that is 5% to church and 5% to an overseas mission does that about cover all the questions on tithing that you can think of okay well okay what is the tithe let's start there it's the idea of giving 10% of your income comes from the old testament so the short answer you're right absolutely right tithing is not a command in the New Testament for a New Testament believer. Let's just get that out of the way. Absolutely right. There is no New Testament passage that specifically says you need to tithe as a New Covenant Christian. But there's a but that's coming, and it's a big but. And the big but is this, that if we read the rest of our Bible when it comes to other things that way, there's a whole bunch of stuff that we would not do as Christians. So surely that's too simplistic And that's where I want to take us. While it is not a command in the New Testament binding on Christians, I want to suggest to you that it is a biblical principle that we should seriously consider as we think about our giving as New Testament Christians. Does that make sense? 
It's not a command that we must obey. It's not a command that if we disobey, we're sinning. It's not any, because there's plenty of things in the Bible like that. And that's what I wanted to talk about. There are, there are different kinds of instruction that are going on in the Bible. And we need to be clear about stuff. So there's the commands, right? The thou shalt or the thou shalt not. Pretty straightforward. To disobey that is to disobey God. Paul says that in 1 Thessalonians 4 when he's talking about sexual purity. He says, you disobey this word, you're disobeying God, not men. Well, that's the easy stuff. That's the, the black stuff. Do not do this. And then there's a whole bunch of white stuff where the Bible says, do this as the people of God, love one another, uh, love God, uh, you know, give. We're talking about giving, give, give generously. They're, they're, all, they're clear. They're, 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 these are the things we're supposed to do as the people of God. Then there's a whole bunch of other stuff, like water baptism that we talked about today, where there are principles throughout the scripture, but there is no explicit command that says you must be water baptized if you are a Christian. There's enough evidence for us to make that case, but we can't go to a chapter and a verse and say, well, you must do this. Because a lot of the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, is not written that way. There are heaps of commands, absolutely, but there are heaps of letters written to bunches of Christians who are wrestling with a whole bunch of different stuff that they're trying to now make sense of in light of their Old Testament origins and the cross of Jesus Christ and how it's radically made a difference to everything. So we need to do the same exercise. So I want to suggest to you that though tithing is not a command, there's a couple of things we need to keep in mind at the background as we step into the New Testament. One is that the early church were all Jews. They weren't Gentiles. So for them, tithing as a Christian would have been automatic. They wouldn't even thought twice about it. They wouldn't need to write about it in the New Testament because that's just what they did. They didn't write about a whole bunch of other things that they were doing because it was just assumed that we're now following Jesus, but we're following Jesus as Jewish people. And we just do what the old covenant people of God did as the new covenant people of God, now with our lordship under Jesus. So going to the synagogue, they did, just did that. They didn't think, oh, should we go to church or should we go to... No, we just do what we've done. And so there's a continuity there with the people of God. It's not till they, you know, even circumcision, right? Only became a problem when? Acts 15, when the Gentiles started coming into the church. Then they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We need to talk about this circumcision stuff, right? But before that, it wasn't even an issue. That, that was just an assumption. That's what we do. So that's why there's probably not some stuff said about tithing that we would think, well, why, why isn't that mentioned in the New Testament? Well, that's one reason. The other interesting thing I want you to keep in mind is in 1 Corinthians 9, 1 to 14, Paul is talking about his right as an apostle to get an income from those that he ministers to. And Paul does something very interesting there. What he does is he goes to the Old Testament law, law, and he uses the word law, and he uses a case of tithing in the Old Testament as an example for what a New Testament church ought to do in caring for their pastor. Now, you might say, but he doesn't say tithe. Absolutely right. But here's the problem with arguing from silence. He doesn't say don't tithe either. Now, you'd think in the context of him talking about a church supporting a pastor, and him using the law from the Old Testament and using an example to make his case, it would be the perfect opportunity for him to say one or the other. And he says neither. So for us to quickly jump on the bandwagon to say, hang on, the New Testament doesn't ever say anywhere we have to tithe, we need to kind of slow down and go, okay, well, is that the last word? Do we just turf out everything 
throw the baby out with the bathwater? Do we just go, hold on a second, I need to think more robustly about this. It's not as simple as that. Okay, so keep that in mind. Okay, so how should we think about these ideas? So there's commands, uh, and they are what theologians call, they're prescriptive, which means we are expected to obey them. Then there are a whole bunch of examples that we're supposed to pay attention to. Like in 1 Corinthians 10, 6 and 11, Paul uses the Old Testament. He says, these things happen to them in the wilderness as examples for us today. He's not saying, you know what? They're all covenant Christians. We can completely disregard their story, their history, what God did among them because we're the new covenant people. We're under Jesus. None of that matters anymore. No, he doesn't do that. Actually, the New Testament never does that. It says, hang on, there's things that happen there that are examples for us that we can learn from. They're not binding on us, but they still inform us and get us to think about how we live out our faith as the new covenant people of God. And then there are a whole bunch of things that are just observations and advice that the Bible gives us that we would do well to live by, like the book of Proverbs. And the problem Christians have is they go to the book of Proverbs and want to make that like a command and a law when that's not how it's written. It's just observations from the world that we would do well to heed. So different kinds of instruction. The best example of this that pulls it all together, and then there's other stuff that's cultural or individual, like Paul's instruction to Timothy. Drink a little bit of wine for your stomach. Now you go to Kenya, they just rule through that scripture. They don't care how sick you are, you're not going to drink any wine. You know, like again, it's a wrong understanding of how to apply the Bible. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 7, and we see how Paul here is doing what we've been talking about in just this one chapter. Can you turn this up a little bit? I'm drying up here. All right, so we start in verse 10. So Paul is talking about marriage and about singleness and a whole bunch of stuff. And he says this in verse 10 of chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. All right, so you see that parenthesis there. And then he goes on to give what the command is. Then jump down to verse 12. To the rest, I say this, another parenthesis, I, not the Lord. He's differentiating between the instructions he's given in a matter of a few verses. Right? Then we go further down, verses 25 to 28. He says this, Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is, uh, are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a command, commitment? Do not look for a wife, but if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles, and in this life, I want to spare you this. You, can you see the difference? Some things are not negotiable. He goes, this is just it. It's the Lord's word. You must obey. The other stuff, he says, in reflecting on the teachings of Jesus and the Old Testament and what I know of Scripture, this is what I think, and I think it's more, it's more than just advice and a suggestion. I think this is something for you to live by. And then there's a whole bunch of stuff that he goes, you know what, in light of this situation, I think it would be good for you to do this. Now, the question is, where does tithing fit? Well, clearly, it's not a command, I think. Others might disagree with me, and that's okay. But I think it's hard to argue from the New Testament that it's a command. I don't think it's in the other category of just a good piece of advice that you can take or leave and just go, you know what, that doesn't fit me. It doesn't suit my lifestyle. That's inconvenient for me. I'm just going to mm, 
because there's no explicit command in the New Testament for me to do it, so I'm not going to do it. I don't think it's in that category either. And again, you might disagree and you might want to keep it in that category because it kind of suits you and works for you. Well, that's up between you and the Lord and what we're going to look at this morning and how you can do that. I think it's in the middle. I think there's a lot of examples and principles about this idea that ought to inform how we think about it. And there's a good case to be made that it's something that we should work towards, not as a law, not as a command, but as a principle to live by. And here's how I'm going to make my case. Okay. Another thing I need to say before we get there, and this is important in biblical theology, is to understand how the cross works. So a few things happen when we get to the cross, when it comes to the Old Testament law. All right, There are some things that stop at the cross. You think of the ceremonial cleansing laws, uh, some of the food laws, um, a whole bunch of stuff. Jesus ends. The priesthood, the, the, the king idea, all of that ends with Jesus. There's a whole bunch of laws that never, ever get through to the New Testament. Then there are other things that the New Testament explicitly comments on and nullify. All right, so food laws was one of them. That, you know, Peter says, and Paul, you know, uh, Peter experiences it, and Paul says, all food is now clean. Clear, all right? That is no longer. Then there's other stuff that still goes through. Ten Commandments, all right? Same, Old Testament, New Testament, the cross doesn't change that, but I want to argue that it kind of does. But it goes through. The question then becomes, what about Sabbath? Where does Sabbath fit? Great question, because I think... Thinking about the Sabbath will help us a lot about thinking about tithing. I think there's a lot of common ground there. And then there's other stuff, and this is the scary one, that Jesus elevates. He elevates. He takes, so Matthew 5, for instance, right? That's what Jesus is doing. You have heard it said, but I say. And it doesn't ever go this way. Can you think of, and maybe you can, and I haven't done my research well enough, but I'm pretty confident in saying this. Can you think of one thing that Jesus makes easier on the other side of the cross? I can't. So here's my million-dollar question to you. If Jesus added in Matthew 5, you have heard it said, give 10%, but I say to you, how would he complete that sentence? In light of everything else he says in Matthew 5. How do you think he would complete that? Would he say, give whatever you feel in your heart and it can be less than what the old covenant people were giving? Do you really think that? If you do, I would love to hear how you argue that from the New Testament. Because when I read the New Testament, I see this. And I want to suggest to you that this is a kindness. Let me make my case. One, when Jesus sees the widow giving in 100%, does he stop her? No. Why not? I don't know, but he doesn't. Case two, when Zacchaeus is converted and gives away 50% of his wealth, does Jesus stop him? No. Why not? When the rich, rich young ruler, we've talked about him, comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, sell everything and follow me. Why doesn't Jesus say, well, 10% will do. In fact, give whatever your heart feels led to give and come follow me. He doesn't. We come to the book of Acts. Ananias and Sapphira and the early disciples, they sold their property 
houses, land, and laid all of the money at the feet of the disciples to meet the needs of that community. New Testament giving is scary. And when you read the passages that people want to use to argue, give as you're led, which is 1 Corinthians 9, 1 Corinthians 10, it's scarier. Let me just read you, I mean, because we're running out of time, and I'm sorry, I, I wish we had more time to explore this. But let me just read you some of this stuff. Because I think we have a, a wrong idea about some of this stuff. Sorry, 2 Corinthians 9. Uh, 8, actually, we'll go to 8. In the midst of, notice these words, severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Rich generosity. It gets worse. For I testified that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. What does that even mean? I testified that they gave as much as they even beyond. Entirely on their own. They urgently, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. This is scary. I'd rather go with this because it's safer, it's easier. But usually when people have a problem with this, it's usually because they want to do less. Am I right? It's not the people who say, can I give more? And I've, I've given this, I find it hard to make the case for giving less. So the, let me tease out some of the implications. Sometimes people say, but what about if you're in financial hardship? Great question, and we, we can apply this teaching to that. But let me ask you this question. Weren't the Old Testament people ever in poverty? Were they all loaded and rich? So if that principle worked for them regardless of their income, why do we think that we get a pass because we're doing it tough? Logically that and biblically, I don't understand that. More questions coming in. Uh, yeah, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't understand how that works. And maybe you can help me understand that. Now, I do see in, in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, proportional giving. Like, so when it came to the offerings, Jesus' family gave doves because they were poor. It's a different kind of offering, and there's different grades of that. But when it came to the tithe, just, the people just gave it to him. And here's the crazy stuff. Like, we have regular incomes. When God gave the law of the tithe, they were farmers. They were completely dependent on the weather, and you and I know what that's like. Did God say, okay, when it's really drought or a bushfire goes through your land, you can drop it down to 5%? I don't see that. So God knows about the various situations we find ourselves in. That's why I think that that's a principle that we need to consider when we make our argument that I should give whatever I feel led to give. The second thing we need to keep in mind when we doing this work of figuring out what we're supposed to give, is that even though there is discontinuity with the law when it comes to the 10%, and I agree, there is no command that requires us to give 10% in the New Testament. So hear me say that, please. If you walk away saying, Hillary and the church here believe that I have to tithe, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying it's a biblical principle that we should consider seriously rather than throwing the baby out with the bathwater and going, that is no longer relevant for us. I don't think that's true. The other thing is that there's a whole bunch of values that underpin this thing, 10%, that continues in the New Testament. Why did they give the 10%? Well, because God rescued them from Israel, uh, from Egypt. Uh, is that true for us? More so. 
Why did they give? As an act of worship for God's goodness and faithfulness. Is that true for us? Absolutely. Why did they give 10%? Because it represented them depending on God for His daily provision. Is that true for us? Absolutely. Why did they give 10%? Because they're saying, God, you, you own everything. Right? Really, you can ask for 100% back, but you let me keep 90. Thank you. That's so awesome. And you're receiving this 10% as just a symbol of the whole lot, and I get to keep the rest. Is that true for us? We've just spent a whole series talking about God's ownership. See, none of those things have changed. So even though it's not a law, I want to suggest to you, why do we have such a big problem with this? That's the question. So people ask me, well, you know, how much should we give? That's like a young person asking, how far is too far with my girlfriend? It's the wrong question. The better question is, how does God want me to live? For a young person, it's impurity. For us, it's open-handedly. So if we're arguing about a percentage, we've missed the whole point. We've missed New Testament giving as a whole. And we want to argue from the New Testament about New Testament giving and we've missed the whole point of it. It's to be open-handed, to give sacrificially. So if you, here's the bottom line, I need to wrap up and I'm going to finish quickly. Here's the bottom line. If you can come to me and make a case that your 3% or 2% or 1%, whatever it is that you're giving is sacrificial for you and is an act of your generosity, I will receive it and I think the Lord will receive it gladly. But I've been in ministry long enough to know that the people who complain about the percentage are not those kinds of people. I've traveled many places in the world and people who have nothing, they do at least this, if not more. So I, I, I'm, I'm just being real with you here. And so I want to suggest to you, think really about what's in your heart because that's New Testament giving. That's the big other thing the New Testament is about. It's about being a cheerful giver. It's having a heart of generosity. It's having a heart of worship and devotion. It's having a heart of gratitude for what Jesus has done for you. That's what drives your giving. So let me kind of put this out. Someone who gives 5%, who gives sacrificially, generously, as an act of worship, is more pleasing to God than the grudging, complaining, compulsive giver who gives 12 or 15% who feels that they've been twisted to give. So let me just say this as I wrap up. If you feel that we've twisted your arm to give tithe, please don't give it. Because I think that's robbing you, robbing the church, and ultimately I think that robs God more than the 9% that you give. It's robbing God from the joy of receiving your offering as an act of worship. It's, it's worthless. But if you give 3%, 5%, and in your heart you know that it is sacrificial. You know it's going to cost you to give. And you are going to work towards being able to give more. And you're going to adjust your priorities and your values in your life so that you can give God more because He owns everything anyway. Rather than trying to keep more so that you can live the life you want to live. Just like prayer, when somebody says, how long should I pray? I don't say to them, pray for an hour. I say, pray for a minute. But grow towards an hour. If that's more time with Jesus, how is that a bad thing? You want to negotiate? Is it 20 minutes too long, too short? It's the wrong question. So start with 1%. But if your heart is towards God, then it will grow in generosity. So I don't have time to... There's a great question here on simplicity. I wish I could do... Let me quickly do that. 
quickly do that. If we are called to live a life of simplicity, what are, I mean, I love this stuff. What are the signs of... Ex- was that helpful, by the way? Awesome. If we are called to live a life of simplicity, what are the signs of excessive spending? A simple, quick tool. It comes down to this again. Think percentage, not dollars. What I mean by that is, for someone who's on 500000 income, let's just say, to go out for dinner and spend $500 is the same as you and I going to McDonald's, probably. Right? It's not wasteful because it's proportion. What proportion of your income is the car that you drive or the house that you live in? Like it, for on my income, to take my family out to Papa Rich is probably the same as a millionaire going to the finest hatted restaurant in Sydney. It's not wasteful. In fact, he's probably doing better in terms of the percentage that that's going to cost him than my meal at Papa Rich. Sometimes we judge other people because of the extravagance that we seem like, or they seem like they're living in. But proportionally, they're doing better than we are. Think proportion. So simplicity, try to reduce as much as you can the percentage of your income that your lifestyle costs you. How does that work? Make sense? Your house, your car, your clothes, your eating out. A simple life is to keep reducing. If you're now at 80%, then working towards bringing that down to 70%, to 60%, to 50%, so that you can then increase this one to 20%. Simple living. Okay. Oh, you want me to stop? All right. Let me read this. Oh, this is great. That is a great question. A quick, if we are to find moral inspiration from the Old Testament, should we also try to recreate a financial system with debts being cleared after seven years? If we were in- <laughs> awesome, but you know what? If we were a fully Christian community, I would say yes. You go to the bank with that, it's not going to work, right? <laughs> but if we lived in a Christian community that were concerned for our brothers. That's what Acts Acts 5 was all about. People were struggling and they were in debt and other people sold their stuff to come and give it to them. That's the same thing. If if they owed you money and you saw how much they were struggling to say, you know what, brother? I love you in Jesus. God has blessed me so much. I clear your debt. Don't worry about it. Let's just move on. I think that would be awesome. But we don't live in that world. Please explain proportional giving. I think I've kind of done that. Awesome. Let me pray. (coughs) Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we wrestle with some stuff that's there and we struggle to understand how to apply it and live it in our day because it was written to different people in different setting with different challenges. But Lord, it still speaks so powerfully to us. And as your people, we want to sit under it intelligently, prayerfully, wisely and bring our lives into submission under your word. And as we think about this very, very important issue of our money and our wealth and our giving to you, guide us lead us, direct us, that, Lord, in our own heart, we would be convinced of what is right. And, Lord, we would faithfully and regularly do that for the honor and glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Parramatta Christian Church podcast. To hear other sermons or to find out more about our church, please visit our website at pcc.org.au.